I'm going to talk today uh, about a subject that's uh, it's very sensitive. Uh, it'll probably take me at least three lessons to get it done. But uh, it's the man of sin that Paul writes about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, it's very informative, very informative text. But I get a lot of questions, people asking me who the man of sin is, because there's a great deal of discussion. Uh, it's highly controversial. Those that watch via the internet, uh, there'll be several who probably get a little upset with me. But uh, I hope you'll bear with me because I'm trying to do the best I can to interpret the scriptures. But I want to take a look and see what we can figure out. First, we'll begin by reading the text. It's always a good way to start. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he has been taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. There was a problem uh, in Thessalonia. They were uh, mistaken about the Lord's return, his second coming. Uh, there had been so much that had taken place after Paul left the city. Some people were teaching one thing, some taught another. Some produced the letters that they said was written by Paul, Silas, or Timothy. Uh, and there was a great deal of confusion. And Paul addresses it twice in both letters. In the first letter, he speaks about the second coming of Christ in chapters 4 and 5. Here in the second letter, he speaks about the coming of Christ in both chapter 1 and chapter 2. This subject uh, occupies a lot of space, which is indicative of the fact that there was big problems when it comes to trying to understand the second coming of our Lord. Uh, there's so much in the scriptures that address the subject that Paul is dealing with. You can go back to the Old Testament and you learn from the book of Daniel, the book of Isaiah, even the books of Jeremiah, 
they all address this subject, the second coming of Christ. The book of Revelation deals with this matter in great detail, as a matter of fact. The very same thing that Paul's talking about. This is why it takes so much time to study it. There's so much information. Uh, I'm going to have to condense it in, uh, quite a bit, to be honest with you. Some things I'm going to say to you, I don't usually do this without proving it. I can assure you that I can prove the things I say, but uh, I don't have time to do it in a sermon like this. It would, it would just take way too long, and uh, we don't need to spend that much time on the matter. But let's take a look at least at the first few verses uh, as Paul starts off in this letter. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. The subject is pointed out crystal clear. It is concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and gathering together to him. We know what that is. When Jesus returns and we're gathered up to meet him, well, we're talking about the second coming. This is what the problem was. They didn't understand it. There were multiple problems. One problem, for example, was uh, they misunderstood uh, what happens to a person when they die. Paul addresses that in chapter 4 of uh, 1 Thessalonians, beginning of verse 13. Uh, now concerning the things uh, that they were concerned about, he did not want them to be ignorant, so he taught them. It had to do with their deceased relatives. They, they expected that when Jesus came back, they were going to be received up to heaven with him. The problem was some of their folks had died, and Jesus hadn't come back yet, and they thought that their loved ones were going to miss his coming and the return to heaven. And they were greatly concerned over this matter. So in chapter 4, beginning with verse 13, Paul addresses that very matter. That just because they're dead, that doesn't mean they're going to miss uh, the Christ's return. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say, they're going to go up to meet the Lord before you living people do. They'll be raised first, and then you will be changed in a moment, and you'll be clothed with a spiritual body rather than a physical body. They haven't missed anything. The best is still yet to come. They didn't understand it. And if you didn't understand it, I could see why they'd be troubled by that. Anybody would. If you thought your mom or your daddy or one of your children or brother or sister was going to miss out on the Lord's return because they died prematurely. Well, anyway, discussing this matter of the Lord's return, not to be shaken in mind or troubled. To be shaken is to be agitated. It's like a... It's like water. Uh, when the wind gets up a little bit, the water gets agitated. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Don't be shaken. Don't be agitated. Don't be troubled. Don't let it bother your mind, occupy your mind. Don't worry about it. Don't be concerned about it. Either by spirit, by word, or by letter, as if from us. Apparently, these were the three avenues by which people were getting information to them. The first one is by spirit, someone posing as though they were inspired by God or by the Holy Spirit. 
others by word, people like me who talk in front of the congregation. Don't be agitated. Don't be troubled by what that preacher says. And then, of course, the last one is by a letter. And then he says, as if that letter came from me or Silas or Timothy. Apparently, someone had forged their names and wrote, written false letters to them, telling them things about the second coming that weren't true. Don't let this stuff trouble you, folks. I, he done told them what was going to happen when Christ came back. So when somebody starts contradicting what I say, don't be bothered by that. Don't let it upset you. And certainly don't let it trouble you. As though the day of Christ had come, the Lord's second coming. It was a popular doctrine at the time that the Lord had already come. That the return of Jesus Christ wasn't literal. It was a spiritual thing. And it occurred on the day of Pentecost when the church was born. Even today, there are those who subscribe to our brother Max King's theory that Jesus came back in 70 A.D., that that's what the second coming of the Lord was all about. It's not real popular in churches of Christ. It's popular with some, and then, of course, it's popular with some denominations that like the teaching of King. But uh, it's not the case. Christ, when Christ comes... It's not going to be a spiritual affair. You're going to see him with your own eye. You're going to hear him when he speaks. You're going to raise to be with him. You'll join him, and you'll ascend with him back into heaven. The man of sin and the apostasy is what Paul is addressing. So this is what we want to focus on. Verse 3, he said, Let no one deceive you, lead you astray, cause you to believe a lie by any means, whether by spirit, by word, or by letter. Don't let anybody lead you off from what you've been taught. You've got the word of God. Paul produced the word of God for them. Now, if someone comes along saying something else, don't let them bother you because what they're saying isn't true. That day, the day Jesus comes back, a lot of things are going to happen on that day. Jesus is going to come back. There's going to be a resurrection of the dead, a changing of the living, and then there's going to be the judgment. <clears throat> All of this is spoken of as occurring in a day, the last day. When that day comes to an end, there will be nothing in the material universe any longer. It will all be gone and all people will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, wherever that may be. Those who aren't prepared to meet him will be sentenced to a devil's hell, a place Jesus created for the devils, and subsequently for those who chose not to believe him or obey him. And the rest of us, we get to live in heaven forever. We get to see the people who have gone before us. We get to see Peter, Paul, John. We get to see Abraham, Moses, Abel, and Adam. Not Abel. I meant to say Adam, hopefully. Get to see Mom and Daddy. 
get to see our siblings, maybe a spouse. It's a great day, great day for those ready to meet the Lord. Not so much for the rest. But this is what Paul's talking about that day. He said that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. Before Jesus comes back. These people knew. These people knew that Jesus wasn't coming back today. The reason they knew that was because there had to be a falling away first. There was no falling away. So Jesus couldn't come back today. They're the only people that ever had that kind of knowledge. Anybody that lived previous to the falling away knew that Jesus couldn't come now. We don't know that because there's already been the falling away. We'll discuss that as we go. The falling away will produce the man of sin. This is our subject. When the falling away occurs, the man of sin is going to be revealed. Everybody's going to know who he is. Oh, people speculate all the time. Adolf Hitler, Ronald Reagan. I've, I've heard just about every name I can think of that people called the man of sin. When the man of sin is exalted, people would know, Christians would know, because Jesus told them prior to his exaltation. Let's analyze it just a bit. The falling away comes from the Greek word apostasia, which is anglicized apostasy in English. In the Bible, apostasy means a defection from God-ordained religion. When God appointed a, a religion for his people to follow, if someone decided not to follow it any longer, that was considered apostasy, a falling away, lost their faith, whatever, no longer following the Lord. In Acts chapter 21 and verse 21, uh, regarding the Mosaic system, the Old Testament, uh, Paul was accused of teaching all the Jews to apostasia, Moses, forsake him, abandon him, leave him. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul said, In latter times some will depart, will fall away from the faith. The word appears in our Bibles quite often. We just don't know what the word is because in English it's changed for the text that it's written in. But that's the meaning of this word apostasia. It's a defection from God-ordained religion. That's what you want to keep in your mind. Anytime somebody departs from what we call the straight and narrow path, that's apostasy. It could be one person, it could be a hundred people, but it's apostasy. Paul refers to it as the falling away. As I said a moment ago, whenever people fall away, that's apostasy. Whether one or a hundred, it makes no difference. Apostasy happens all the time, most likely every day. But this isn't just an apostasy. This is the apostasy. It's different from anything else. It has to do with a definite movement. 
something major, something that's going to grab the world's attention. I could apostatize from the faith tomorrow. You all would notice it, but nobody else. It wouldn't be a big deal. It wouldn't be on the TV. That's not what's going to happen, according to Paul. It's going to be a major event that takes place. <clears throat> the Church of Christ, as you know, is going to exist until that day when Jesus returns. Daniel speaks of that day in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. He spoke of God's kingdom as a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The only kingdom known to man that shall never be destroyed. Even on that day when Jesus returns, his kingdom will live because his kingdom is in heaven. And that's where all the saints are going to be. Now, that day, Paul's referring to the end of time. Before the end of time can happen, first, he says, there has to be a falling away. There's going to be a, a, a major departure from the pure Christian religion just as God gave it. It's big. It's going to be on the television news. <clears throat> it's going to be all over the Internet. This apostasy is going to be known by people all over the world because it's going to affect everybody. And they're going to know that there's been a major upset in the church that Jesus built. John speaks of an apostasy in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. He said, they, he's speaking about his brothers and sisters in Christ. They were members of the church where John worshipped. And he said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Not of us, they were not of the same mind. They were not of the same spirit. They were members of the same congregation, but they had a different attitude. John and others were devoted to the concept of following the instructions of the Lord the best they could and depend on grace for their salvation. But there were some of the brothers and sisters that they probably liked most of the doctrine of Christ, but there were some things that gave them a little bit of trouble, and they didn't like it. John said they, they are of a different mind than we are. They went out from us, but they were not really like us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Why leave? If we're all in agreement, behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. But that's not what happened. It wasn't a pleasant situation. Some people were unsettled. And John said because of that, they went out from us. You know it has to be the case or they would never have left in the first place. But they went out that they might be made manifest. They went out from us because they wanted all people to know that none of them were of us. They were no longer members of the same congregation that John and the others were. This group of people did not like the church. 
They did not like the gospel of Christ in its pure, unadulterated form. There were some things they thought that just weren't right. There were some ways they believed that they could improve upon this religion. So they decided to leave the congregation where John was, and they started a congregation of their own. And now all the world knows they don't want anything to do with the church that Jesus built. That's what the idea of being manifest means. There was a falling away which resulted in impure Christianity. If the church that Jesus built was pure New Testament Christianity, then any departure from his way would be a religion, yes, be a church indeed, but its doctrine would be impure. Its attitude would be impure. They had fallen away because they didn't like the religion of Christ. So they made one of their own. Most of it was probably the same religion we got today, but there were some things they changed, not everything. One of the popular doctrines of the time was salvation by faith alone. We know that this was a problem because inspired writers had to address this problem. For example, the little epistle of James, probably the first epistle that was ever written by divine inspiration. Uh, deals with this particular matter in chapter 2 beginning with four, verse 14 and through the remainder of the chapter verse 26 uh, James knowing that many of the brethren believed that a person was saved by faith alone addressed the subject he said a man is justified by works not by faith only. And he proved it. If your brother is hungry and he has no clothes, and you say, yes, brother, I know you're hungry. I know you have no clothing. But be filled and be warm, notwithstanding you do nothing to help him. What good is it? What good did you do? Well, obviously, it was good for nothing. And then he talked about Abraham, that Abraham was justified by his works because when God told him to offer up his son Isaac, he did. Uh, an incredible feat. But the only reason Abraham would offer up his son was because he truly believed in God and he truly wanted to please God. Therefore, James said he was justified by his works. And then he goes on to make the statement we have before us. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. There was an apostasy from the original church because people believed that you could be saved by faith alone without works. And it was a problem. New churches started popping up different denominations, if you will. You had the original church that Jesus built, and then you had denominations. 
and they would teach people, if you want to be saved, all you have to do is believe and come up here and let us pray with you, and you're going to be saved. You don't have to be immersed in water. That's not necessary because you're not saved by your works. If you believe, you're going to be Sounds good. Very popular, but it wasn't true. And that's sad. Apostasies occurred throughout the New Testament time. As the New Testament was being written, there were people who were separating from the church that Jesus built and creating new denominations, churches that would teach things that they like, what they thought was rational, and they were separating themselves from, well, the foolishness, if you will, of what the New Testament has to say. There was another teaching that was very popular at this particular time, and that was salvation by works alone. Paul writes about it in Ephesians chapter 2. And in verse 8, he makes the statement, you're saved by grace through faith. Not of yourself. It's a gift from God. Not of works, lest anyone boast. A lot of people, preachers, they say, well, James and, and Paul are contradicting one another. No, they're not. They're actually complimenting one another. James wrote to people who believe that you're saved by faith alone. And he proved that that can't be true. You have to have works in order to be saved. Paul is speaking to people who believe that you can be saved by your works alone. And Paul says, no, you can't be saved by your works alone. You must believe. They're not contradicting one another. They're complimenting one another. Because there were these two major teachings during the first century and beyond that people subscribed to. Apostasies occurred. But that's not what Paul's talking about. Remember, he spoke about the apostasy. This apostasy would also offer an impure gospel. Ultimately, it's going to produce the man of sin. The man of sin is going to be produced by the apostasy. I would suppose that what happened is that many of these groups joined force and became a bigger powerhouse. In the year 312 A.D., Constantine made Christianity the state religion. Paganism was out. Now Christianity is the state religion. I've got the material they produced at the time, and believe me, it's not the gospel of Christ that they advocated. It was very different. The strangest part of all was that Constantine had never even been baptized. As a matter of fact, he never intended to until just before he died. And then he would have people baptize him so he could have his sins taken away. He would not sin again. He'd be a shoe in for heaven. And that's exactly what he did. 
and he thought by doing that he would be saved. Constantine made Christianity a state religion, but he wasn't a man of sin either. The man of sin wouldn't come till a few centuries later. As this, uh, this group, this uh, religious body, as it grew and grew stronger, it ultimately became so strong that it was more powerful than the, the emperors of the Roman Empire. It was only a matter of time until the emperors were kneeling before the man of sin. He was appointed in the year 606 AD. He was the first pope to sit on the throne. Introduced as our Lord and God, the Pope. Jesus Christ sits on a throne in heaven. The vicar of Christ sits on a throne on the earth. And if you read the language in 2 Thessalonians 2, you'll see the indicators that are the same as what we see today in the Roman Catholic Church. This man of sin, which is the Catholic Church personified in the Roman Emperor, this church will continue until Christ comes back. The church as it is will continue to exist until the day Jesus comes back and then it will come to an end. Paul said, this man of sin whom the Lord will destroy with the brightness of his coming. So it's going to be around until the end of time. There's reasons for it. We don't have time for all that right now, which we did. But there's reasons why this was a necessity. This was necessary to help you and I work out our salvation. As strange as that may sound, but it is true. Characteristics of the man of sin, we can only go over two and then we'll have to call, stop. Number one, the man of sin, the son of perdition. These are the terms given to the man of sin. Ellicott said he referred to uh, the man of sin as the man of sin because sin was its predominating quality. This is why he was called the man of sin. This religious body, this church, if you will, is going to be a sinful institution. It's going to spread sin throughout the world. And history demonstrates that that is exactly the case. And where did I get my information? From the Catholic Encyclopedia. It's all recorded on those pages. And you can see what was done through the centuries. The son of perdition, he's called, because the end of this organization is perdition. The Lord will consume him with the breath of his mouth, destroy him with the brightness of his coming. So indeed he is the man of sin and the son of perdition. He's referred to as the lawless one, verses 8 and 9. In verse 4, Paul said, He opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And that is the declaration of Papa. He's God on earth. Appearing to be an angel of light, its existence is 
according to the working of Satan. Through the centuries, people thought this was the work of Christ, but it wasn't. Its birth, its continuation, it wasn't by the will of Christ. It was according to the will of Satan himself. He opposes all that is called God. He opposes all that is worshipped. He exalts himself above all that is called God and all that is worshipped. He's a notch higher than God. This is why Catholics pray to Mary, who also is higher than the Son of God. Their reasoning is, who's the greater, the mother or the son? The son's existence was dependent on the mother. Papa is higher. He's loftier than Jesus Christ. And they pray to a higher power, which is Mary. The man of sin sits as God in the temple of God. This temple is not in Jerusalem. One of the things you notice as you read the New Testament scriptures and the Old Testament is that the temple in Jerusalem was referred to as the temple of God. It was God's house. But once Jesus died, it's never, ever called the temple of God again. There's a new temple, a superior temple. And Paul writes about that in the Corinthian epistle. The temple of God is the Christian's body. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. God doesn't dwell in a house made of brick. God dwells inside you. You are his temple, and that's where he lives. It's also referred to as the church. It is God's spiritual house. There is no temple of God in Jerusalem any longer. There wasn't one during the days of New Testament revelation. The only temple that existed was you and the Church of Christ. The temple of God, as it sat in Jerusalem, or anywhere else for that matter, is a false temple. God reigns in heaven, and a little g God reigns on the earth. Just because a man calls himself the vicar of Christ doesn't mean he is the vicar of Christ. He's not, he's a fraud. And he doesn't represent anything heavenly or godly. I used to think otherwise. All of this is the working of Satan. It's not the working of God. And we must know the difference. <clears throat> the implication of Paul's warning is this. This unholy being is being viewed as being a church character. The man of sin is an ecclesiastical power character. Compared with the description of John's lamb-like beast in Revelation chapter 13, we don't have time to do that. I wish we did. John goes into great detail about this man of sin in Revelations chapters 12 and 13, especially. He deals with it in other places, but especially those two chapters. I can't finish it. Maybe we'll talk about it next week. But it's important. We should know the New Testament revelation. So God willing, next week, we'll continue on 
with what Paul wrote in First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, rather, chapter two, verses one through twelve. Read it, and then read it again. Then read it a third time, maybe a fourth or a fifth, because we're going to be talking a lot about it. 